There's a statue of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, and he's sitting on a throne, and he's holding in his hand the orb of the world in one hand, representing the earth, and in the other hand, he's holding a scepter, symbolizing his status as monarch. So he is therefore being shown as the ruler of the world. Nearby, in the same museum as Professor Crossan has informed us, there's another statue too. It too has a man seated on a throne, holding the orb of the world in one hand and a scepter of authority in the other hand. That one is Jupiter, the king of the gods in Roman mythology. So the two statues are nearly identical, except that Jupiter has a full beard and Caesar is clean-shaven, and the size is different. But the imagery says it all. Caesar is a human, but more than merely human. Perhaps he is Jupiter in human form. Perhaps he has the spirit of Jupiter. The Romans offered no theological explanation for how Caesar could be both human and divine at the same time. Crossan observes that the Romans never had a council to try to come up with a philosophical explanation as the church did at Nicaea to explain Christ's relationship to God. But even without an explanation, the message was clear from those statues. Caesar was one with Jupiter. Unlike the Romans, the early church, however, did feel the need to explain Christ. The man Jesus, as everyone knew, was deeply spiritual. People felt close to God when they were near Jesus in his presence, and people sought him out for their spiritual needs. Jesus taught people about God with the confidence of someone who knew God intimately. So how did Jesus relate to God? Was Jesus really divine and only appeared to be a human? Or was he human but full of divine power? Or was Jesus both human and divine? There were differing opinions in the early years. The council at Nicaea in 325 worked out a consensus view on the matter, but it was still not unanimous. Some people walked away from that council with alternative views intact. Today, we call them heretics. That's what the winners get to call the losers in theological sports. The Gospel of John was the favorite of the winning side at Nicaea, and it's easy to see why. The language with which John's Gospel describes the Christ is, is the loftiest of all the Gospels. It starts with Christ, not as a baby in a manger, but as the Logos, the divine Word, who, has, who was responsible for all creation becoming part of creation by taking on human flesh. In John's Gospel, we hear Christ in prayer to God. In prayer, Christ gives thanks to God for the unity that they share. It is here we see so clearly what, that this Gospel is mystical. Ideas float in and out like figures in a dream, appearing and disappearing within long, winding paragraphs. Christ is present, but in prayer he says that he's no longer in the world. 
He speaks of having protected his disciples while he was in the world, past tense, but he's still right there with them. The language is mystical. Chronological time is replaced by cosmic timelessness. At Nicaea, and then later at other church councils, they worked out the theology that God was three in one, the Trinity. Jesus, the Spirit, and God the Father are all equally and all eternally God. They read the language from John's Gospel, which spoke of how Christ was glorified, a word which means Christ was radiating Godness. So it's not hard to see how a concept like the Trinity was needed to explain how Christ could be God while God the Father was still God, both at the same time, and the Spirit was also God. But one idea embedded in this language of exalted Christology got left behind, like a scene that got cut from a movie and ends up on the cutting room floor, one concept from this proclamation of mystical union between Christ and God was neglected in the Western church and functionally forgotten. It's not only that Christ is one with God, but that followers of Christ are also one with God and with each other. The oneness of disciples with God is not a secondary derivative unity. It's on the same level as the unity between Christ and God. It's all, it almost sounds heretical to say so. But listen again. Christ prays, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. And that was what he prayed just after having prayed, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, as we are one. Not similar, but as. The Eastern Orthodox Church has been a, done a better job of teaching this, but the West has let it fade away except for the mystics. And to be fair, you can find this teaching about our union with God in Augustine and other Western theologians, but the emphasis is not there. What could it mean that we are one with God? What could it mean, as 2 Peter says, that we are participants in the divine nature? Well, the answer for me is found not in philosophical explanations of Nicaea or any other formulation, but in experience. It's more like the result of seeing those two statues of Caesar and Jupiter. We experience the oneness with God without having to explain it. Now, some of us have had powerful experiences of oneness with God. Others of us have had more fleeting and momentary experiences of awe and wonder that come out of nowhere and then vanish. In either case, we have experiences of union with God. Now, the people we call mystics in the Christian tradition have written of their experiences 
One is Julian of Norwich, a 14th century writer, in fact, the first woman writer in English. Living in the time of the plague, the Black Death, she wrote of her experiences that she called showings of God. And she used the old English word wanting to describe the oneness that she experienced. In showings, Julian writes, by myself, I'm nothing at all. But in general, I am the wanting of love. For it is in this wanting that the life of all people exists. And then she continues, the love of God creates in us such a wanting that when it is truly seen, no person can separate themselves from another person. And she goes on, in the sight of God, all humans are one, and one person is all people, and all people are in one person. Richard Rohr, who introduced me to Julian of Norwich, says of her thoughts, this is not some 21st century leap of logic. This is not pantheism or mere new age optimism. This is the whole point. And yet, is it not the experience of each of us that we are also not one with God? We feel the distance. We feel it when we're not our best selves, when we do or say things that we know we shouldn't. We feel the distance when we're feeling down or depressed. We feel the distance when we're upset or when we grieve an important loss. We feel the distance when our egos are in charge and we are self-focused and entitled. Reflecting on this sense of separateness, theologians like Augustine taught that our original condition is that we're born sinners. He taught that we inherit original sin of Adam and we pass it on to our descendants. Does that doctrine of original sin square with the teaching in Christ's prayer that we are one with God as Christ is? Other theologians, like Pelagius, pointed out that in the biblical creation story, the original condition of humans was beloved and blessed. Sin is a fact, but a secondary fact according to the story. Originally, we are made in the image and likeness of God and pronounced good. Alienation came later. As Richard Rohr said, oneness with God is the whole point. It's not a state to be wished for or achieved. It's a fact. This means that the sense of alienation or separateness that we feel is the illusion. Paul, according to the story in the book of Acts, affirmed to the people gathered there that the poets got it right when they said that it was in God that we live and move and have our being. We exist in God because as theologian Paul Tillich taught, God is the ground of all existence. In this mystical gospel of John, 
Did you notice how two kinds of oneness weave in and out together? We are one with God and we are one with each other. Hear it again, Christ prayed, so that they may be one as we are one. And that too sounds almost too heretical to imagine. How could we humans be one with each other as Christ is with God the Father and the Spirit? This too is not a goal that we should aim for or an achievement, it's a fact. We are one with each other as we are with God. This unity is the basis for our community. We care for one another and serve one another, not because we are blood-related, not because we went, all went to the same school or we're all in the same uh, fraternity or all worked for the same firm, not even because we're all on the same political team. Rather, our unity is deeper. Our unity is based in God's loving embrace of us all and therefore we embrace each other that is why exclusion and discrimination are such a scandal to us it's inconceivable that people who are one in god should not treat each other with the utmost respect and dignity and this is also the basis of our mission we are the sent ones as john's gospel teaches just as Jesus was sent on a mission to announce God's love and forgiveness to the world, so Jesus sent his disciples on the same mission. This is our mission. Sometimes it requires words, sometimes only actions. Sometimes our mission involves muffin, muffin making. Sometimes it includes sign making. Sometimes it's direct assistance. At other times, it's advocacy and allyship. But it's always based on our union with God and therefore with every person made in God's image and likeness. The goal is to realize this in practice, what is true in fact, that we may be one as Christ and God are one.